Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. I don't think I have ever been as nervous about interviewing someone in my entire career as I was when my former boss and colleague Susie Menkez agreed to speak with me for this podcast. I worked side by side with Susie for 16 years at the International Herald Tribune, which is now known as the International New York Times. Over that period, she mentored me, encouraged me, and guided me, shaping my career as I moved from her assistant to a fashion writer and finally the online style editor of the IHT. During our time together, we experienced so many amazing fashion moments, from the John Galliano, Alexander McQueen, and Marc Jacob eras at Dior, Givenchy, and Louis Vuitton, respectively, to watching firsthand the rise of LVMH, Gucci Group, and Caring, and the whole transformation of the fashion industry from art form to billion-dollar luxury business. Not to mention witnessing the debut of iconic designers like Nicolas Gisquier, Albert Albaz, Pierre Paolo Piccioli, Phoebe Philo, Tom Ford, Stella McCartney, Alessandro Michele, Riccardo Ticci, and Maria Graziaciuri, just to name a few. Seuss's career as a fashion critic spans close to 60 years, starting with her college days at Cambridge, where she was the first female editor of the university's newspaper. But even before that, as a teenager, she moved to Paris to study at the fashion school that is now known as Esmode. So her love of fashion as a visual expression of self and society runs very deep indeed. She started her true calling as a fashion journalist at the age of 24, working under the watchful eye of Charles Winter, the father of Anna Winter, who would become an early mentor for Susie. But Susie really came into full bloom as one of the most respected fashion critics in the world during her 26-year tenure at the International Herald Tribune. Her words were read in the pages of the daily newspaper by hundreds of thousands of readers around the world and eventually by millions once the internet was born. An audience that only expanded with the advent of social media and her turn as Condé Nast's International Vogue editor, which saw her words being translated into different languages and her reviews posted on all the International Vogue websites. She also was the mastermind behind the idea of the Modern Luxury Conference, events that are now commonplace but were brought into being at the International Herald Tribune and later continued at Vogue under her guidance. Susie is renowned for her honest, fair, and insightful writing, and her ability to put fashion into the context of a wider global narrative. Today, she runs her own very successful podcast called Creative Conversations with Susie Menkez, where she continues to interview the leading movers and shakers within the fashion industry. She is still asking the questions that every fashion lover wants to know the answer to. But now, I'm lucky enough to be able to turn the tables on her a little bit and ask her a few questions of my own. Hey, it's so good to see you. I know, I can't believe it's us together. What fun. Like the good old days. Yes, long time ago now. I know, right? Susie, it is an honor to have you on Fashion Your Seatbelt. I have been dying to get you on my podcast since I launched it in 2017. So thank you so much. I'm right in thinking, well, one of the things that I, what I was great about working with you, because we worked for together for 16 years, was that you had this experience, I believe, back in the day where you actually studied 
fashion design in Paris, even before becoming a journalist. So I felt like you always had this extra level of knowledge that other fashion journalists didn't. I learned a lot when I was in school in Paris, but it was so different from the way that people learn about fashion today. Very strict, very much lined up as though we were in a school, old fashioned school. And my great moment, or rather my worst moment, was when I was hauled up on stage and shown this skirt that I had made so beautifully that was a pleated skirt. And I thought, really, she's going to smile and say to me, this is how it should be done. But there was a horrible silence. And then she started tearing up the skirt, tearing up my skirt. Why? What had I done? And she turned around and she said, Madame, we were all called Madame, Madame, you have made one pleat larger than the others. And it was, you know, like a tiny, tiny amount. And I said, oh, well, I'm so sorry. And she said, you realize that if you made more like that, you could never get the fitting right. And I thought, well, there's French fashion for you. <laughs> so you went, okay, maybe not French fashion, maybe going into writing. And I know that you were the first, you were the female editor of your college newspaper, the Varsity at Oxford, the first female editor ever in the history of the of the newspaper and that you brought fashion into, into the newspaper, which was something completely new. What inspired you to do that? What made you want to, or felt that fashion needed to be covered in a, in a college newspaper? And what was it like running a team as a woman? Well, you've got to remember that this was a period, this was the late 1960s. And um, it was a period when everything was new and fresh and it was all about youth. And so there was no reason why we wouldn't be talking about fashion. Everybody was interested in fashion and had new clothes to wear. So that's how it happened. And also, unlike in France, there was a really, um, it was quite easy to work with our bosses, if you call them that, um, in um, when we were at Cambridge, because they were quite sort of open and wanted us to give our best. And I think that's something that stayed with me, that I'm always interested in seeing what new young people are doing because they are the future. So let's see what they're up to. Yeah, that's always been wonderful uh, about you is that you've always been curious. Your curiosity for me was one of the things that inspired me the most about you, that and your integrity, the, the two things. Um, but if I remember correctly, your first fashion show wasn't so much of an integrity to get in there. You kind of snuck in, am I right? Oh dear, that was a disaster. It was the um, it was a show during the season, but I then was there. I was very very young, and um, I didn't actually have an invitation. So I um, I crept in and managed to um, find myself a place. I, I've done that pretty quite a large number of times since um, that day. Um, but the trouble is that I did something absolutely disastrous and terrible. I did a little drawing of a hat. You don't think that sounds so terrible? Well, I tell you why it does because you weren't allowed for three months, three months after the show, to have any kind of form that so other people could see what it was. So one of these dragon ladies looked over my shoulder and saw this drawing of a hat. I'm only happy with my bad drawing that she recognized it. <laughs> but she grabbed me by the arm and took me down those stairs, you know, those grand stairs they have in the grand room. And I was scarlet in the face with embarrassment and tears. And um, so it was not very auspicious start to seeing fashion shows. And I've been thrown out a couple of times since then, but never to feel like that. 
<laughs> yeah, because it's so interesting that you say that because of course today everything is so instantaneous. And one of the things that I always loved about um, when you would criticize or be in the front row at the show is that you would always, you would sketch almost every exit that would come down the runway. You'd do these little, you know, line drawings to kind of remind you of what the, the collection was as you were writing your criticism later. Um, I do want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, I think you started, you started at the Times and at 24 and then you landed a job as a fashion journalist at the London Evening Standard. Um, and so during that time, I believe you were kind of put under the wing of Charles Winter, who's the father of Anna Winter, is that right? That's exactly right. Um, I wouldn't say put under the wing exactly because um, he was pretty tough. And but he obviously saw something, some possible potential in my terrible writing and terrible whatever I was doing. So he did take an interest and he did involve himself. But I have to say that I was not unique in this. He was an absolutely marvelous editor who talked to all his staff and he made the decisions himself. And um, I can remember a time when the Beatles, um, I think they had up for having drugs or something like that. And at the same time, there was another big story going on in the world. And um, he actually walked around the whole office and asked people what they thought. I think that's very interesting as an editor, somebody who actually is interested in what the public might think. Mm, absolutely. Did, um, was this the, the point in your career where you came up with your famous updo or was that later? I've always been curious about the, the origin story of your amazing hairdo. The hair was much later. Um, all I did was um, to cut my hair so that it looked like Anna Winters when I went to her 21st birthday party. But the thing is, she's never changed her hairstyle, but I've changed mine quite a few times. And I don't think I did the poof um, really until the end of the 80s. I mean, the 80s was all about puffy hair. So I think that's when it was. Um, so um, it, uh, it's certainly something that I've kept with me. Yeah, I definitely, it was all about big hair and big shoulder pads for sure in the 80s. And, you know, maybe a great way to indicate your time at the Herald Tribune, but we're going to get to that. I could not talk to you about work-life balance because I know you met your husband, David, when you were working at uh, the Times, right? Correct? When you went back to the Times? Yes. Uh, and then you had uh, three sons that you raised together. And I remember when I had my first child and I asked you at the time, I said, how did you do it raising three kids? And you said terribly, but I really want to know, like, how do you... How did you manage, especially in your era, that work-life balance? You know, you just fell into it in that era. Now it's so different. Um, I was younger than a lot of the um, people now who have um, babies. And so I think it's more difficult now. I mean, if you've got to quite a high place position and you're uh, 38, it's rather different. I, I think I was 25, 26. And so it was like a full, full 10 years earlier than most people are producing that, at least in our world, mm -hmm. are introducing um, children today. But I don't know, how did I do it? Getting up early, I think, is probably the answer. And I mean, I had a wonderful husband who sadly is no longer with us, but um, he was so supportive and helpful. And after all, that's it, isn't it? I mean, if you ask anybody, it's, it's not just a work-life balance, it's a balance of your relationship with your beloved person and you know it was I wasn't all on my own I felt very much that I had other people to support me and that was good and of course my boys were all wonderful and um, they uh, didn't need dressing in those days because there wasn't really much menswear except totally boring stuff so I'd buy stuff and then they passed down from one age from the eldest to the youngest without me having to do anything. 
Uh, yeah, that does help. I do the same thing with my three girls. They're all the same height, so I get to have them all wear the same outfit. So we looked out, both of us, in that sense. Is this the period when you became fascinated with the, the royal jewels? Because I know you've written a number of books about the jewelry, and I wanted to know, because it, it is fashion to a certain extent, but it's not you know, the field that you were studying. What drew you to the royal jewels and, and to make books, so many books about them? I've always been interested in two things. I, I mean, I studied history at Cambridge University, and so I've always been interested in that. And um, the whole business of the royal family then was much more secretive than it is now. I mean, well, I mean, I don't think they try and make it um, open up, but since there's somebody writing something about the royal family every other minute, um, it's very much a big open space. But when I did it, it was very hard to write this book on the royal jewels because I really had to find where they were and they'd never really been written about. So it was kind of detective work, which was good for something, someone who's a journalist, because that's how you work. Mm -hmm. And I found it fascinating. And, um, you know, I've been noticing as I watch some of the sad things and the less sad things that have been going on in this last year, um, I still see those jewels coming out. It's, um, there are favorites. And it's rather fun to be able to see them and recognize them. Yeah, and I want to, and I know that you received the OBE from the Queen herself. Did the two of you talk about your books when you were getting your honor? She mentioned my book when she gave me, the, you know, you don't get very long with, with um, the Queen as you um, get your badge, as you might say. Um, but she did mention it, which was good because um, at least I knew she'd read it or seen it or whatever. And um, since then, other people have done that sort of book. So it wouldn't be such a surprise for her, perhaps. But uh, I loved doing it. It was very interesting and intriguing. And uh, I also wrote much more about jewellery then than I do now. Things weren't so comp compartmentalised, what a word, then, you know. they um, you, If you were interested in something, you could flow on to something else. And newspapers and magazines seemed, didn't have this great division about one person writing a subject and another, another subject. That's all come in, I'd say, in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. Talking about the division uh, of, of, or segmentation of church and state, that was always one of the things when we worked together that I was so impressed by and, and felt like I lived in a bubble with you because your time at the International Herald Tribune, which started in uh, 1988, I believe, uh, you could write however you felt. There was this real separation between advertisers and editorial. And, and I was so impressed with your integrity and that through that 25 year experience that you, you never kowtow to any advertisers and you are always you know, true to yourself and your criticism. Um, I wanted to talk to you about that era in your life because it was such a transformative time, not only for the industry of fashion, but the industry of newspaper journalism and just kind of what your thoughts about that period of your life what is are. It wasn't really such a surprise to me when I joined the International Herald Tribune um, that I would have to keep apart the idea that you sort of get cozy with the people you're writing about because I mean that was always like that and certainly the Times of London then which was completely different kind of paper then very serious and solemn and always the idea was that as a journalist you had to pass the information but you weren't in really involved in it mm -hmm. and um Actually, I don't think anybody in those days invited you out to lunch. You know, it, it had to be, you had to wait for Valentino to be invited to some grandiose lunch. But I didn't accept free clothes or free shoes or free bags or anything because I don't see how you can write if it's all been given to you free. And I feel much the same, great complications over the last, say, 10 years about these shows 
done all around the world when I think no um, organization, and I mean, it's very tough days for magazines and newspapers now. So how could anybody really go to these shows in the ends of the earth, whether it's China or whether it's South America, anywhere, without somebody flying them in? And so things have changed very much. And I can't criticize my colleagues on it, because if they want to see the show, that's the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that you and maybe Women's Wear Daily and a handful of others were the only ones who were still paying their way to many of these different shows. The digital age came about when you were at the Herald Tribune. So, but it was interesting because you were working at a daily newspaper, the, the speed of, at which digital kind of changed, transformed the, the industry, you were kind of already working at that speed. But I do want to talk to you about what that was like for you, the advent of you know, digital photography, the advent of social media, and, and of course, you know, uh, the whole, you know, influencer space. So what was that like for you during that time? Well, Jessica, as you know so well, it was rush, rush, rush to produce the stuff. Because with the newspaper, certainly, that if we were doing something and there was a show at four o'clock in the afternoon, I had to write it, see it, write it, get the photographs, and um, produce it all by about six in the evening, which all sounds very slow now. But you've got to remember that we're talking about the days when it was old fashioned photography. And so we would, we or our um, photographer would have to rush to the uh, place where they developed the stuff so that we could have it. And it was disaster. Anything after lunch was a disaster because the um, person who organized the uh, photography for us was so fast say, you can't imagine. He um, started drinking, not in the morning. He was very good in the morning, but he started drinking with his lunch. And by the time we came to the show that we'd been to at four o'clock in a mad rush and we arrived there he was either asleep and snoring or in a terribly bad mood about being woken up so it was a struggle to get the pictures in the in in place and that was for the next morning Mm. yeah I know things have things have changed what about the actual process of writing because that's one of the things uh, in particular fashion criticism because that's one of the things that people ask me about you know and and I remember you telling me you never look at fashion as if it was something that you would wear. But I want you to tell me about a couple of things. First of all, how you look at a collection and come up with your criticism. And then I'll ask you, you know, a follow-up to that. But I, I do want to talk about your process a little bit to understand it better. It's such an interesting question you're asking there because things are so different in this last year since we've been seeing films, movies. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, I, I didn't realize it because I just went into the shows sitting, I hoped, in the front row, and then watching and looking at all the different things. And I realise now that we're very manipulated as journalists, because, of course, I'm delighted to be able to see the show, but you're seeing it in such a way that it seems to me now that if you watch, say, I don't know, a a Gucci show, whatever it is, you see there's a a look on the head, I mean, the face and the hair and everything you see, and then there's a quick very very quick down towards the handbag where the where the film lingers over the handbag as though it's the only thing on offer mm-hmm. and then slowly down to the knees and then a rush down to the shoes which also a long way and then the shoes turning around and walking away you never see the back of anything I, I tell you if you find a show when there's a back now which is things that we always used to do I, I'll, I'll pay you to I'll buy the dress for you because I know you're never going to find it And that is such a difference. We don't think of it as different, but when you analyze it, it is very different. Yeah, because we're talking about the fact that the it is the the brand or the company when you're watching video or 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 streaming, they're 
they're focusing your eye where they want it to go. Whereas when you're sitting in the front row, you're picking up on whatever you want to pick up on. It's a very different animal. I often think of Naomi in that famous time when she slipped with the, um, the shoes and crashed onto the ground. Do you know something? I don't believe we would get that now if that happened. I don't believe we would get it in the full run. Yes, we'd get it something photographed at the time, but I don't think we'd get it on the full run. And with these films, I don't think you would ever know that she or somebody else had slipped and fallen. Do you think so? Because oh, I, everything is edited. Yeah, everything is edited. I remember, do you remember that Prada show many years ago where all we actually had to, some people actually stood up from the audience and helped the models walk because it was impossible to walk in the shoes that it had happened. And then the whole articles people wrote about were those shoes. So it's it's uh, it, it's really interesting to see how how the internet and the social media has really shaped the way we see fashion. One other thing that's happened that's, that's changed is that I know when, when you started working and, and when I started working um, to a lesser extent, the buyers would choose what they would invest in in relationship to the fashion criticism that they would they would get from the different fashion writers. Today, most buyers do their buying way before the fashion show even happens. What do you feel like is the, the, the role of the fashion critic today? Has it changed? What's its value at this point? It doesn't worry me at all if the buyers have already bought things because I must say, although um, I was friendly and remain friendly with many buyers, I still think that their vision is completely different to those who are looking at it as a sort of art form. You know, they've got to sell the stuff. So that's completely different. But um, what, what not exactly shocks me, yes, I think it does shock me, is this thing that's come up over the last um, six months when the um, a chosen few mostly attached to Vogue, but in, also in other countries, um, meet with the designer on Zoom and are basically transporting the words of the designer into their own words and showing things. And there is no criticism at all, as far as I can see. Occasionally, a little tiny bit slips in, you know, of an absolutely feeble kind saying, you know, that they could perhaps have been more day well or evening well. I mean, some absolutely nonsensical, simple thing but we're just not seeing criticism at least I'm not maybe I'm looking at the wrong things but I feel that compared to not the fact that I was cruel I tried not to be cruel but I think our job is supposed to be to make a critical judgment not simply to listen to the designer although it's, it's often fascinating to hear where the designer came from and what they wanted to get over but that shouldn't be all of it Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, uh, regurgitating, you know, designer sound bites is not the, the role of a fashion journalist in any way, shape or form. Do you feel, you know, there is also this a lot of cancel culture now in, in fashion and in many industries. I know that there were times in your career where you, you wrote strong criticism and, and had to face some backlash. How did you handle those situations? I mean, what was that like for you as a creative? Because, you know, Part of the, the way you wrote was if you weren't seeing the show, you know, if you weren't there physically, you wouldn't review it. So if, if a brand decided to say not let you into a show, that was a really difficult situation to be in if you were a fashion journalist. So how, do you, how did you deal with that during your career when that came up? It, it didn't happen as often as I thought it might, um, mm -hmm. that I'd be forbidden to come to the next show. I think Karl Lagerfeld was very interesting on that because he always uh, insisted that um, he didn't want to interfere with journalism and he genuinely didn't. And I always remember I did a really, really bad review. I think you were there, um, Jessica, um, for Chanel 
And um, the next day, they took a whole page of the Herald Tribune and said, I can't remember exactly what they said, but, you know, Susie, we loved it or something like that. Yeah. And um, that, that was so smart. And I spoke to Carl afterwards and he said they didn't understand at all. They thought I was crazy. But, you know, it was such a smart thing for him to do. Yeah. And of course, other people are much more sensitive. And one thing I've always tried, you know, you learn a lot about um, what's happening in in the world, I mean, the world beyond fashion, for a lot of these people who are not really deep friends, but you know them. And if ever I knew that a designer had lost his mother or slipped with his, um, split with his partner, or that, um, you know, perhaps um, the woman had lost a baby or anything like that, I would always be gentle with my review because you have to be human. You really do. And if you know that they're going through bad times, I think that you should be more gentle. No, I agree. And I, and I remember one of the things that you said to me was that, you know, you kind of, you never bash somebody on their first show or you, you give them a, a minute to get their feet underneath them. You know, you give them that, that grace period, which I always thought was such a, a wise piece of advice. When you're at the Herald Tribune and also at, at Vogue uh, during your tenure at Vogue, you had an incredible power within the industry. You were the first thing everybody read in the morning without question. Uh, you were the, the go-to. What was it like to know that that was the power that you wielded? I mean, I remember when you put uh, an image of Zach Posen on the cover of the New York Times or the, Her the Herald Tribune. You know, he was like the new big thing in New York at that time. Like to do those kind of things, it has huge impact. How did, what was it like knowing you had so much power within the industry? You know something, I mean, you'll understand this. The only thing that I cared about deeply is my family. Mm -hmm. And if my family had not spoken to me, or any of them, for something that I had done, some meanness, I would be devastated. You know, if Gianfranco Ferre, which he did, said he'd never wanted me to come to one of his shows again as long as he lived, although I did, he invited me back pretty soon. But, um, you know, it, obviously it's awkward. And, um, I still now don't really want to talk about it, but when the real big cheeses come at you, particularly if they call at, um, as one particular one does, um, at half past six in the morning screaming at you, it's difficult. It's difficult to keep calm and keep your head in. But, and then I would just think, I usually bring up David and, and my husband in floods of tears and then I'd get over it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where the family support is what it's all about. I absolutely am, agree with you and have that same kind of have that same kind of relationship with my husband. He was always that sounding board that kind of brought me back down to reality. Speaking of fun stories, can you talk to me a little bit about some, you know, great scoops that you got during your tenure that you're super proud of that you that you just like, yeah, nailed it with that one. Do you know something? I can't think of a single scoop. I mean, they, they don't seem to be things that are important now, I, that somebody is going to go and work at, in a company. I, I don't know. Can you remember? What are you thinking well, of then? One of the ones that stuck out for me that you told me about was, uh, I think it was when the Oscar de la Renta was going to go to Balma and you found out about it because you were on the right plane, airplane or something like that? Yes. Yes. So that I, I've had a few of those. And um, certainly... Um, it's amazing how people are keeping a secret, but they never see who's around them. And um, that all seems such a long time ago, which it is. Mm. And um, But what was so different then is that it was very rare. The changing of designers was pretty rare. I mean, it happened, obviously, if somebody passed away, um, that it had to be filled up. But it wasn't this, you know, next, next. 
so I suppose it was it was more of a surprise. But um, I'm trying to think. I, I I should have done some homework, shouldn't I? I can't actually think of somewhere where I really felt that I made a, a fantastic scoop. Mm-hmm. I think though there was the business of um, the whole Gucci business was just so extraordinary in itself. I mean that was a whole story, you know, story in a story, and in a you know in a different way. Um, it happened that in people's personal lives sort of crept into the stories. No, but I, I know I agree with you. I remember that era of the Gucci group and then the arrival of the white knight of, of caring and that whole experience was just a huge game changer within the within the fashion industry. But then let's get more specific about maybe some memorable fashion shows or moments. I mean, I, I will never forget the one we did at Versailles together when we were on deadline trying to get that one Dior dress up onto the runway to get that photo together, which was so insane back in the day. But what are ones that kind of linger in your mind? Yes, it's all about time. That's what I think of. My story I was telling earlier about the um, uh, the person who produced the pictures for us. I mean, it was always that. We were always rush, rush, rush. Uh, but that was part of the fun of it. I mean, that's how that's how the whole of newspapers were in that series. And that's what we were writing for. Specifically, let me just think of something that really fired me up. Yes, I think that um, some Dior shows, because they were very, you know, they got very strict, these people, so it was much harder to get in. But I I was never scared of running through and running backstage. I don't know how many backstages I did, but a lot, a lot. And I used to follow um, Mr. Bernard Arnault, and he and his his wife and members of his family were there. And so I was always made myself very friendly and charming um, to the person who looked after them, you know, who obviously was very important. I'd always say, you must work so hard in these weeks. And I feel for you, you're always smiling, you're always charming. And then he was always charming when I said, can you get me in? And um, I went in. <laughs> That's true. I learned that from you that you never know of the cravate rouge, which are like the kind of the guys who seat you at a show one day might be the head of security for a, you know, a big player and they remember you. They remember you're your being kind. And you know, even when they were a quote unquote a nobody at the time. I mean, I, that that's always something that stuck with me. I do want to talk about the way fashion criticism has changed because I remember when you would start we would come you would come up with a, a theme every for every article an overarching kind of idea or story and then you would weave in the criticism for each show into that overarching story today that really isn't the way fashion is criticized or written about it's like this is a review for the show and the show and this show what was it like for you to just kind of shift that change that way of thinking and then also I know as blogging came into the world, the idea of bringing your, you personally, bringing the I into the story, which was something that both of us were trained, you never put yourself into the story. I still feel uncomfortable putting myself into the story. I still um, prefer to keep myself at a distance. And um, I think this should be true of journalism in general, but it's not, that's Mm. for sure. But everything changes. I think it's pointless to sit there. Um, The New York Times has not changed, you know, they still have the kind of, for the shows, They still have three or four things in one story Um, and good for them if that's how they want to do it. But I think it's much harder to do that now because you don't know whether to put the the biggie right at the beginning, which sort of, you know, drives off, wipes off the others. Or if you put the smaller people at the top, then obviously it's kind of weird that you are suddenly doing um, Chanel at the bottom of the page. You know, it's, it's hard to make sense of it. And anyway, don't you think that you've got to live with the world as it is, not as the world as it was? No, agreed, agreed. But 
looking back at one more point during the Herald Tribune years, one of the things that I thought was so inventive and, and, and honestly, at some points, you know, really helped the Herald Tribune uh, make it to the end of the end of the year uh, were the luxury conferences that you launched in the 2000s. It was, you know, never, nobody was doing anything like that in the luxury space. People didn't see uh, luxury as, you know, a billion dollar business to take seriously, I think, until you really created those IHT luxury conferences. And I wanted to know where that inspiration come from and how do you feel that now you've that's you know there are, are fashion conferences around the world that are all you know based on your premise what you started i think the whole idea of having a fashion conference is really interesting because it was actually just at the beginning of the new millennium and it i think it made people more aware of the seriousness of fashion i didn't mean i think i'm talking about bringing um, fashion to a larger number of people and all sort of aspects of fashion. And then you got the business of fashion, of course, coming about, um, I think about 10 years after I originally started on doing the conferences. But the other point of the conferences, which I don't think that people who didn't come to them realized, was the opportunity to meet and speak with other people. Because I'm not talking about those who are speaking on the, on the podium, but those who came along and perhaps had their only opportunity they would have in their whole working life to meet somebody right at the top of the game. And I know how much people cared about that. And, um, you know, obviously we had to stop the conferences because of the pandemic, but um, we were still carrying on and people were still desperate to come and eager and probably still phoning up asking when they're going to be. Yeah, no, I know. I know you, uh, you took the concept with you when you uh, moved to uh, Condé Nast and, and started your stint with, the, with Vogue. So yeah, the conferences, I, I think, are, are a, huge, a huge benefit to the, to the industry and, and have really greatly changed the perspective that the, the general public also has about, about the industry, for, for sure. I do want to ask you, because before smartphones, before all of the, you know, the, these great cameras that we have that are almost like professional, you know, film cameras on our phones now, you back in the day were, I don't know how many throwaway cameras I bought for you, but you were taking these pictures all the time. Where did that idea come up with at the beginning? And I know you've got boxes and boxes of prints somewhere. So what are you doing with all of those? Well, now all these um, boxes of prints, they're now digitalized. So I've got pictures right from the start of when I started taking photographs. And um, as I can tell you the secret that I'm working on a book at the moment, um, you'll be able to see a very small number of, um, of what I did. But the idea of taking pictures quickly was always interesting to me because at the time, you know, we were still the legacy of a fashion was still that they, you had a whole setup and the model posed. And this was quick, quick, quick. And after all, that's where fashion's gone. So I think I was ahead of the game. And also it was, it was just fascinating to capture the moment. That's what interested me always. And it still does. I mean, it's not like I stopped. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, speaking of stopping, I mean, yes, I, I think that it's so great to see all of those candid images that you got and, and everyone was so relaxed when you would, because everybody thought it was, you know, throwaway camera, you know, what's the harm? It's all in fun and games. But, you know, talking about now, when you're, when you're looking at, at today, what you can do with all of those images, it's it's quite a, it's quite impressive that you, what you've been able to accomplish with with that. I have to say, one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about, and one of the things that I I also um, say to people who ask me about you is that I've never seen somebody with such a work ethic, with such a drive. I would be exhausted halfway through a full day with you, Susie. Where does that come from? That energy come from? Because it is it is always just 
you know, knocked me on the floor, the, the amount of, of work 24 seven months at a time, you know, nonstop, no day off ever. How, how did you do that? I mean, where did that strength, that inner strength come from? It's a very simple answer. I love my job and I've always loved it. And so if you enjoy what you're doing, you don't think of it as work. And Natasha Cowan, who I work with now, she's the same as me, you know, we love doing this and we hate the idea that we've been, we couldn't do it all through the pandemic. And we enjoy, we're like children, we enjoy going and seeing things. And there's nothing that irritates me more than people who take that lackadaisical line and sort of say, oh, another fashion show. And I feel like kicking them and, and saying, listen, if you don't want to go to it, I can find 10 people who pick up your ticket. Mm. And that's the way I feel, I enjoy it. I also think you're exaggerating a bit saying that I'm working 24 seven and all the rest, but I did a lot of other things apart from working and did a lot of things with my family as well as going out things. Mm -hmm. So um, I may have given the illusion because I certainly wrote a lot because I do write very fast, but um, I wouldn't say my entire life has always been uh, involved in working. Yeah, I mean, the you were always, well, I have to say you would, you, my experience with you was always that you were the first one to file, the first one to be done. You were always, uh, you know, at the, at the cutting edge of everything that was going on. So, but talk to me about what it was like to leave the Herald Tribune after 25 years. I left, I think a year or year and a half before you did. What was it like to move from that kind of space to, to Vogue, you know, and Condé Nast, which is a, not a completely different animal, but a different, maybe a different perspective on fashion. The point about the New York Times taking over at the International Herald Tribune was exactly that. I was working suddenly for the New York Times. And um, whereas I'd had complete um, possibility to write what I wanted to write, I was then told that, um, oh, well, this subject's going to be covered by X in New York and so on. And so I, I just knew that I had to go. And um, Jonathan Newhouse, suggested that I came and worked for him and um, so I, I leapt at the opportunity and also enjoyed it very much. But what is interesting is that it, it started exactly as I had been at the Herald Tribune and as I wanted my work to be. I was responsible for going to see a lot of people in different countries in India and um, um, all sorts of places but then what happened was we it became much more as it had been at the Herald Tribune at the end that um, oh well you know American Vogue is dealing with that one or it hadn't it became much less free I think I would say and um, I mean now it's even more so because they're you know Anna Winter is one by one removing the editors who are part of the family of a certain country Mm -hmm. and um, plans to make it a general thing. And I would certainly would never have fitted in with that. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy doing my own thing now. Well, I mean, that's, that's interesting that you say that because it's, it's true that when you first started at the Vogue's, you were, were you know, the editor at large for all of the international publications. So you had this amazing reach and, and now, and then there was this, you know, everything being, you know, all of the websites being the same, making everything homogeneous, or I guess is the word, you know, uh, homogenized uh, Vogue's where every website looks the same. And now, like you mentioned about Anna, that they're re, rejiggering the whole hierarchy of, of the fashion shows, of the fashion houses and, and the fashion magazines. So it, it, I, yeah, I can see where you're coming from in relationship to, you know, wanting to do your own thing and, and being your own voice. What are your current thoughts about what's going on in the fashion space and what would you like to see happening? I think that what's happening now is that the biggies are getting bigger and it's really hard to start if you're small. 
so that you're talking about an enormous amount of people being absorbed into the um, big groups and it's into the um, material that they have there, which is extraordinary, really. They have so many. I think that um, uh, LVMH now has about um, 70 brands. Of course, I'm including wine and these other things, but it's still absolutely extraordinary to me that there could be so many. Mm -hmm. And um, what sort of worries me is that I don't think that younger designers have enough time just to do crazy things on their own. Um, before they're launched into working for another company and you know will they ever be able to stretch themselves out and uh, I, I, it worries me but you know I mustn't worry about these things because the right people will have the energy to put themselves in the right place and um, nothing can ever stays the same especially in fashion. Well I have to say I, one of the things that have always impressed me about you is your ability to you know not so much finger on the pulse but kind of see into your crystal ball and look into the future I mean different things like you know, they talk about the fashion circus that was something that you launched you you were early to twitter early to social media and instagram now you're into podcasting uh you know what is it what is that like to to kind of put yourself out there and and push yourself maybe outside your comfort zone into areas that you are not familiar with what what is the appeal of that for you i suppose i just like doing new things and I find them fun and interesting. And um, I wanted to do something that interested me and excited me. And I also realized, or actually it was Natasha who um, came up with the original idea. And what she realized was that just as all us journalists were sitting at home cursing, so the designers themselves were, were miserably thinking, you know, what can I do? And so it was really a mutual thing, but we're continuing with it. And um, I find now that some people are actually coming and asking if I can do it for them. So that's very thrilling. Where do you, there's a huge debate now with future of fashion shows, you know, people talk about sustainability and carbon footprint and traveling the world for these different fashion shows. Does it make sense? Doesn't digital make it possible to make more democratic that you're not having to travel across town to go to a Dior and then see a smaller designer and then maybe miss a big show and, and an advertiser and all of that, that, that maybe the, the future more sustainable and more democratic would for everything to be online and, and maybe, you know, and have everything digitized. What's your feeling about how fashion weeks and fashion shows and that whole aspect of the industry, how that should evolve in this new normal? I'm proud of my industry, the upper level of fashion, which is what I mostly write about, because I really do think that the work that's being done to help the planet, I think, is the only best way you can describe it. I think there's much more than people realise. And you can if you look into it, I mean, even the really big groups have got somebody who's dealing with sustainability. I'm, I think it's good. Unfortunately, at the lower level, it's the exact opposite, that it's all about money or as little money as possible when you come to sell the garment. And I feel very badly and very uncomfortable about that. And I just don't know what you can do to make the people who are buying these things, at these low prices, do something about it, by which I mean don't buy them. Yeah. That's the problem now. There's, and I also feel very um, frustrated because when you talk to people who don't know much about fashion, they treat it as though everything's the same, as though... Chanel is the same as, well, I'm not going to say it because I'll get sued, but we, you know who I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I certainly would like to see more of the middle ground of companies that were not um, enormously expensive in terms of what they're selling, but really were thinking about looking after and looking carefully at what they're selling, the product, what it's made of, all these things. And I think that's the missing link, if you like, because at the cheap end, I'm sorry to say that 
it's very hard to get anybody to move. At the top end, people are really making an effort, but we need a middle period. I mean, a middle price range, a middle style range that um, could actually become a part of the fashion world for the many, many people who care about these things but can't afford to go to the top level. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. That's one of the things that I, I mentioned that it's so great to see the, you know, the destigmatization of uh, vintage or secondhand and that, you know, you buy better, but even if it is secondhand, it could be a great solution for people who are more on a budget. What, uh, you know, this is such a generic question, but I actually want to know the answer. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to do what you do in today's landscape of fashion and fashion journalism? You have to do something because you love it. And you have so many opportunities. You have opportunities today. You could go to your local newspaper for as long as it's still standing up, which may not be that long, and um, offer to write something, write something interesting, always seeing and looking for a story. And um, of course, you can do it even more online. You don't have to think about something that's being published. And um, you can start now. I mean, the opportunity to start your own podcast, to start anything of yourself. But, you know, the secret of journalism, I don't have to tell you this, is, is do it. Mm -hmm. Do it. You don't sit there and wait for somebody to come and bring a story and say, or, or someone to come and say, um, this, this designer who could be interesting, will you, would you think of doing an interview? It's the other way around. The, the person should be discovering someone and putting them out there. And um, I think there's a massive opportunity still. And, but it's always going to be somebody who cares about it, who's passionate about it, who's interested, who wants to do it. I mean, I still feel like that after 50 years or whatever it is that I've been in fashion. No, I, I feel exactly the same way. What I, what I love most about it is those young discoveries. And, and I tell the same thing to, to you know, young designers. It's like, no one's going to come knocking on your door. You need to get out there in the world. And that same thing, I guess, holds true for journalists. If you no scoop is going to come to, come to you sitting behind your desk, you need to get out there into the world and, and discover it. Um, Susie, I want to ask you my five generic fashion questions because I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. These are the questions I ask everybody that I've interviewed. And the first question is, what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own that you pride above all others what you, that are precious to you? Anything by Simiaki. <laughs> I know, I can't wear pleats, please, because for me, they're so synonymous with Susie Menkes that I can't. <laughs> After so many years together, we were just talking about the importance of, uh, you know, finding that middle ground for fashion. What would you feel is that one garment that somebody should actually put money aside for and save up and buy, you know, more expensive, well, more well-made, let's say, um, piece, you know, because not everybody can buy designer um, pieces, but what for you is a, a piece to really an investment piece? You should always be looking, I think to clothes that work as hard as you do. If that means that you go and spend your time out dancing, well, then you need clothes that are going to stick together while you're dancing wildly. But seriously, if the clothes are lovely, but don't actually suit your way of life, what's the point? Mm -hmm. And vice versa. So that's what I think, that you've got to um, have something that makes you feel strong and is strong enough to stand the wild life that we all live. That's so true. I remember when we would, the odd time we would be able to go to like maybe a press sale or something and you would always tell me, you know, if you buy it and you never wear it, then it really isn't a bargain, Jessica. So don't buy it. <laughs> oh, I still have those pair of gloves from undercover with the felt feathers that sit in my closet, but I, I you know, I have them and I love them, but never worn them. All right. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead? 
I can't answer this. Yeah. Because there's so many that I love and admire. I think really, I can hardly think without crying of Albert Albaz. He answered so many things. Of There are many others that I love, but he was just fun. And he had women's women's views, women's women at heart. That's what Albert Baz brought to the fashion that he did. And I'm so sad to see him go. Yeah, that was hard, very hard. Um, okay, before I start crying, um, what trend will you never follow? Anything with a waist, because my waist is very small in my head <laughs> and very big when I go and try things on. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, and last question, Susie. What do you love most about fashion? The fun, the difference, the elegance, the craziness, all those things, preferably together in one single outfit. Oh, Susie, it has been such a delight to catch up with you and to hear all these great stories and to reminisce with you. It's just an honor. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for asking such great questions. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.